This week's deadline is fast approaching. It's always been a matter of pride for the team at Nivar that deadlines are met on time. Maria, stop panicking. You've got this. There's that story ready to go about the new granary being built outside St. Petersburg. Important, but pretty dull. But then there's this other thing. At first, it had been nothing more than a rumour, but now I'm hearing more. An illness is spreading its way through the city, likely caused by changes in the atmosphere. My sources are saying it's racing from house to house. All ages, all classes, everyone's picking it up. I heard it from Peter. The schools are starting to close and that his hospital is filling rapidly. Nearly everyone's saying that it's probably mild, something to lay you low for a while, but not to kill you. Peter has a name for it too. He's calling it the influenza. Welcome to late 19th century Russia and to the seventh episode of our season on the history of pandemics. The disease outbreak we're about to discuss is surrounded by questions. It's commonly known as the Russian flu, but seems to have been little spoken about by Russians at the time. So is that name really appropriate? And indeed, was it really flu at all? Does it even deserve to be part of our series as a genuine pandemic? Or is it just an outlier in our historical narrative? In this episode, we'll try to shed light on all of these questions. Before we get into any of that, let's check in with our medical experts, Blanchet Oguti and Brian Angus, on what flu actually is. And some of this is going to sound quite familiar. Influenza, commonly known as the flu, an infectious disease caused by an influenza virus. So there are two main types of influenza virus, types A and B. The influenza A and B viruses that routinely spread in people are the human influenza viruses, and they're responsible for the seasonal flu epidemics we see every year. Influenza A viruses can then be broken down into subtypes, depending on the genes that make up the surface proteins. And over a course of the flu season, different types, A and B, or subtypes for influenza A, can circulate and cause illness. Essentially, people with the flu spread it to others about six feet away um, from coughing when they're contagious. Most experts think that the virus spreads mainly in those droplets when people cough, sneeze or talk. And these droplets can also, they land in the mouths of all the noses of people who are nearby and then they inhale them into their lungs. Less often, a person might get the flu by touching a surface or object that the flu virus has been on and then touching their own mouth, their nose or possibly their eyes. Essentially, people with the flu are most contagious in the first three to four days after their illness begins. Some otherwise healthy adults may be able to infect others beginning one day before their symptoms even develop so they can start spreading it before they're even aware that they're unwell. And some people, especially young children or people with weakened immune systems, might infect others with the virus for a much longer, longer time. Two concepts that are quite important to think about with influenza when you think about it in the epidemic and pandemic context is that the influenza viruses are constantly changing. And there are two main ways that they change. So you have antigenic drift and antigenic shift. Antigenic drift 
So these are when you have small changes, um, mutations essentially in the genes of the influenza viruses that can then lead to changes in the surface proteins of the virus. So you have the HA and NA surface proteins. And these are the antigens. And this means that they can be recognized by the immune system and then they're capable of triggering an immune response. The changes associated with antigenic drift, they happen continually as the virus replicates. And most flu shots are targeted towards these surface proteins. If you have small changes that occur, then you can create influenza viruses that are quite closely related. And then you have something called cross protection, which is possible. However, sometimes these changes can keep accumulating over time until the body can't actually recognize them. So they look at them as antigenically different. And when this occurs, the immune system doesn't recognize the influenza virus that's slightly changed. And then you kind of have a, a newer virus and then somebody becomes susceptible to that circulating infection again. Antigenic drift, the main reason why people have to get the flu jab more than once. Um, and why they continuously review and update the vaccine as time goes on. With antigenic shift, you have a kind of an abrupt major change in the influenza A virus, and this results in a completely new um, HA or NNA and proteins um, on the influenza viruses, which can infect humans. And when you have um, this kind of shift, it results in a completely new um, influenza A subtype. And one way that can happen is when you have influenza viruses that jump from animal populations and then gain the ability to affect humans. And quite often these are dangerous because we don't have much immunity to them um, and then they can spread quite rapidly. Flu changes all the time. It has a drift and a shift in its antigens as well, particularly to things that sit on the surface of the, the cell. And those are the things your immune system comes in contact with and they change from, from year to year. Um, tend not to change within within the host so much. And then again, antiviral um, resistance for flu, we can see develop. Again, not quite as big a problem as something like HIV, um, but it certainly does come along. So oseltamivir resistance, for example, we saw emerging as soon as we started using oseltamivir. Everybody knows the symptoms and signs, but essentially people who are sick with the flu, they can get a combination of fevers, coughs, muscle aches, body aches, headaches, feeling tired, sometimes vomiting and diarrhea, though that's more common in children, and running your stuffy nose. Before the series, the production team and I discussed a 2005 study which said that it was tempting to speculate that the virus might not actually have been an influenza virus, but instead a human coronavirus. So I was looking forward to hearing what our medical experts thought of that. Viruses don't last as long as maybe bacterial DNA. So when you're trying to look at historical records and trying to isolate things, it's a bit more difficult because you're not going to really have much intact nucleic acid. As far as coronavirus versus flu, again, I think it's difficult to say. These respiratory viruses do circulate, do epidemics, and then become endemic. We know about flu because flu changes year to year. And I mean, it's interesting that they don't call flus pandemics. Flu is pandemic. I mean, it starts starts with lots of cases in one country and then moves into other countries, which is the definition of a pandemic. I think as far as these big outbreaks, that may well have been the first appearance of a, no, of a novel coronavirus at that time that has then established itself in the population. 
more likely, I think, is because we know flu does this all the time, that there was a there was an outbreak of, of, of flu. And of course, there have been lots of epidemics and pandemics of flu that have had um, large casualties um, because it sort of it escapes it escapes our immune systems quite regularly. So I, I don't think there's evidence one way or the other really on that. Coronaviruses, the, I mean, SARS SARS one was interesting because SARS one sort of came in and then disappeared. And although we sort of take a lot of credit for being able to control it, I'm not quite sure that how much of that was luck or not. Um, and so, say, coronaviruses certainly, and MERS similarly, can cause severe diseases, as we can, as we can see. The coronavirus, I think, that's been linked, um, is it OC34, is quite closely related to a cow virus as well, bovine. There's a bovine coronavirus that causes quite a lot of problems in cattle. Again, as I say, it's this thing about close contact with animals, um, and it may well be that, that that was the that was the way that it started. I think it's, I think it's very difficult to say. We know flu does this. We know coronaviruses aren't particularly good at doing it. So, if I was to put money on it, I'd say it's more likely to be a flu, a, a flu, pandemic flu, than than a coronavirus outbreak. And our historian for this episode didn't think much of this line of questioning either. I've come across this information as well. I think for a historian, this is not necessarily a very important question. I'm Julia Manhertz. I'm Associate Professor of Modern History at the History Faculty and at Oriel College, and I'm researching 19th century Russian cultural history. For us, it's interesting what contemporaries experienced, what conclusions they draw from it, and how they assigned meaning to whatever th- was going on around them. Whether it was an influenza virus or a coronavirus is interesting, but I think for, for me as a cultural historian is absolutely secondary in under, because I'm interested in how people react to the, to the crisis. Right. With that cleared up, at least as far as I'm concerned, let's get into the story of the so-called Russian flu. In 1889, the Russian health ministry recognized that something was unusual and that mortality rates were significantly higher than the previous two years. And they concluded that this was due to a particularly severe case of the usual winter. They called it Qatar or maybe influenza, didn't quite know what. So um, the Russian high command and the military sent telegrams to all military districts because they 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 realized that this was spreading among troops as well um, and they asked the military doctors to figure out what was going on and the fact that they sent a telegram is indicative of that they thought this was some something urgent and something they couldn't wait until a, a normal letter was delivered what they asked is what is this for an illness where has it come from what furthers the spread of this illness, what makes it spread, and how do we best fight against it. But as military doctors noticed at the time, actually there there was a lot of confusion of what they were actually dealing with. And as one wrote in a report in 1891, actually we didn't even quite know what we were supposed to look after, what we were supposed to look for. They received reports from all over the country that are very clearly described 
who was ill and they were also supposed to take particular account of the age of people who fell ill, how long the illness lasted, how it spread from to military or from soldiers to the civilian population. And one of the questions was also, do you think that some people might already be immune to it? Is it? Are there some people who, who are not affected by it? And when all this information came in, the doctors in St. Petersburg were trying to draw some conclusions from all this statistical evidence that they had heard. And the first thing they did is they wrote up very clear accounts of in this district, this is what happened, and in this district, this is what happened. And one of the big debates then for within the Russian medical profession was, is this a contagious disease or is it caused by, by something else? And maybe we can come back to, to that question of what, what causes disease in a moment. So it's clear to say that at least from the official side, there was an awareness that something was going on, something slightly unusual, and that this was something that where the state had an interest in, in knowing what to deal with it and also had to, to try to keep the population and also troops as healthy as possible. So there was confusion of sorts about the disease at the start but I wondered whether the authorities put any kind of measures in place, perhaps like the kind of social distancing we see mandated today. No, and I think one of the reasons for this is, is that they're not sure what is causing this disease. So the medical opinion at this time is sort of post-Pasteur and post-Koch. So contagion is already, has become the more convincing epidemiological argument. But there are still many people who think that maybe this is not contagious. And this is why when they sent out their telegram, the Russian military doctors are all told to note down who gets ill and what age they are and how it spreads. But they're also informed that they should note down what the weather is like, whether they observe any atmospheric phenomena. Because the question in people's minds or in the mind of those requesting this information is that maybe this, this is actually caused by some kind of pathogen that appears from the earth or depending on, on the weather. And this, this goes back to the miasmic theory and especially, let me check his name, this is a um, very influential um, German Max von Pettenkofer, who assumes that pathogens for illnesses are a bit like fungi that live in the ground. And when the water level rises and, the, uh, and then sinks again and the weather conditions are right, these organisms produce pathogens that then spread. And so quarantines don't help because the pathogen is actually in the earth or in the nature in the given region. And with Pasteur's discoveries of Bacillae in 1868, and then Koch's discoveries of the tuberculosis uh, pathogen and, and others, this theory becomes less convincing. But that doesn't mean that it's totally gone. And this is why Russian doctors are still wondering, might it be atmospheric causes to this influenza? And the fact that it occurs so suddenly among a large group of people, they think, suggests that maybe it can't be contagious because the spread is too fast. And most of the doctors from the Russian military districts who write back to the Russian center command, most of the military doctors in the regions actually say, we think this is not contagious. We think there's some atmospheric 
or other uh, causes to this. And the Russian doctors are not alone in, in this assessment. So British doctors, they're the wildest theories. Some say maybe it's the Northern Lights that causes, others, others say maybe it's a meteorite that somehow <laughs> went down somewhere and spread all these, <laughs> these pathogens around. So this is generally a view that has quite a lot of currency at the time. And so these Russian doctors from the military districts all write back, we don't actually think it's contagious, but here is how it developed in my district. And then the, the ones in the, in the center, they are more convinced by Koch and Pasteur. They, they are not so strong defendants of this miasmic theory. And they go through all the details that the regional doctors sent back and say, Actually, they think it's atmospheric, but we don't. Because look, here it was first the military band that got it, and then they played in this in this tavern. And then we can trace them back. So essentially what they do is they do they trace all the infectious chains and then say, well, they think it's atmospheric, but we actually we're quite convinced this is contagious. Given that context, I was keen to find out about the mortality statistics that were recorded by the authorities. So if we look at the mortality rates for St. Petersburg, for example, which was then a city of around 2 million inhabitants, we see that in previous years, in 1887 and 1888, around 440 people died every week in early November. But if we look at 1889, the year the flu reached the capital of the Russian Empire, the numbers are significantly higher. So they are 602 in week 45, which would be the first week of November, 733 the next week, 650 the week after, and then it, there's a downward trajectory after that. This means that mortality rates are 50% higher, some maybe even more in, in week 46, even more than 50% higher than they used to be at this time of year. And this is a significant increase and one that the authorities did note very clearly. That Russian authorities would note these statistics, we, we know this because they had been recording mortality rates since at least the 1830s when they published regional mortality rates regularly in the uh, regional official gazettes. There are probably somewhere also aggregate mortality rates of uh, November 1889, and the Ministry of the Interior will have had them, but unfortunately I, ha I haven't seen these figures. With these numbers in mind, I wanted to hear more about how the Russian media and the wider public would have regarded this outbreak at the time. So Julia took me through one of the most widely read publications of the late 19th century. So what is interesting is that on the one hand we see that mortality rates are significantly higher in early November, but this is not met by any particular public response or public concern. So if we look at the publication or the articles published in the widely read and very popular illustrated journal Niva, which was published in Petersburg, so close to the scene of these mortality rates, we see that they mention all sorts of interesting things or things that they deem interesting in November and December, but not the flu. So to give you a context of what NIVA reports in this period, so November, December 1889, 
there are numerous articles and illustrations about the World Exhibition in Paris. There are lengthy reports about 500 years of the Russian artillery with pictures of Russian cannons and exhibitions of Russian cannons. There are articles about the centenary of the conquest of Odessa on the Black Sea, today hot city in Ukraine. And there are reports about the presentation of Edison's phonograph in Vienna. And even on the more sort of entertaining end, there are pictures and reports about dolphins attacking an orca off the coast of Japan. A long article on a new granary that was built near St. Petersburg. And of course, grain is an important export item for the Russian Empire. So you can see why this is important. There are reports about uh, lengthy biographic accounts of pianist and composer Anton Rubinstein and a slightly celebrity story about how Tolstoy as a young man encountered a bear while hunting. And of course, then there are lots of articles about Christmas. And most of these articles, including the dolphins, uh, are accompanied by illustrations. The flu appears on one page in uh, issue number 49 on 2nd December 1889. And this page is small print. There's no picture on this page. And the headline is Various News. And one of these various news items is the flu. And the article goes as follows, quote, in various places in Russia, the epidemic grip has appeared, which spreads quickly amongst the population. In Petersburg and its suburban districts, in Tsarskyselo, Gachina, and even in Moscow, but also in Kazan, that's on the Volga River, in Simferopol, in Crimea, and in other cities, masses of people fell ill with this harmless but severe and unpleasant illness, which is also called influenza. To get an idea of the number of the affected, suffice it to say that one third of the population of Petersburg have succumbed to its attack, which spread amongst all age groups and amongst all classes. Some educational institutions closed because 50% of pupils and teachers were ill with influenza. All hospitals have been overflowing and pharmacies could barely cope. The onset of influenza is immediate. Body temperature raises to 40 degrees or even 40.5 and it falls equally fast. The illness lasts one to three days, rarely five to six. And apart from the high fever, the affected has pain in all joints and headaches, and sometimes suffers from dizziness and various nervous ailments. And then it goes on to, to describe what brings about this affliction. And it says, quote, data suggest that the current epidemic is rather mild, this illness is epidemic, but not infectious. It spreads without any clear plan or direction and without infectious clusters, and it is thus very different from cholera. Influenza spreads immediately, like torrential rain, and affects entire countries, even parts of the earth, at once. Influenza is not at all like infectious epidemics, which spread, which spread through microbes. In all likelihood, the causes of influenza are cosmic, caused by changes in the atmosphere. Many doctors explain it through an excess of ozone, which from electricity in the atmosphere acquires a great force." End of quote. Now, why is this interesting? I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. It, it's interesting that it's only a short article in an illustrated journal that otherwise cares much more about other things. 
But it's interesting also in the way it describes influenza. And there are some ambiguities in the descriptions which are quite revealing. One of them is that it says it spreads, but at the same time it says it's not infectious. It appears it's immediate and it affects entire, entire countries and even parts of the earth at once. So there's a clear uncertainty of what is actually going on. On the one hand, it says it's severe, but also it's a, it claims it's mild. And I think what is how we can sort of make sense of this contradiction is if we look at the point of comparison for influenza, and that's cholera. In comparison to cholera, this influenza is not really striking fear into contemporary readers. And this, I guess, I think is also what explains why there is a small article about it and doesn't seem to cause much anxiety or demand for information. The difference between us and them is that infectious disease are ubiquitous for them. And so if, if one comes along, then yes, we have to deal with it somehow and we describe it. And yes, pharmacies might struggle and hospitals are overflowing, but, but that's part of normality in, <laughs> in, in winter. And so we can sort of, it's not really as gripping or as interesting for readers as are the dolphins. My immediate reaction to this was great surprise that the public weren't up in arms about this new disease. So I asked Julia to tell me more. I think the general consensus is that the public reaction was quite resigned. My hunch is, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct in this respect, this pandemic did not cause any local hysterics, local hysteria, it did not cause a lot of local anxiety and sort of and this is also one of the reasons why in the historiography plays a minor role. Although everyone knows there was this pandemic and it, and, and it caused deaths. But it's interesting, for example, there is a, a wonderful book about the cholera in Hamburg in 1892 by Richard Evans, a fantastic historian. He doesn't mention this influenza once. He does say that most of deaths were caused by respiratory diseases, um, of which tuberculosis was the most severe. And even if we take tuberculosis and influenza and all the other respiratory diseases together, it's still less than half of the deaths caused by cholera. But I think in, in this pandemic on its own does not seem to have received much uh, attention. There is an article in what's it called, um, The Social History of Medicine, which claims that fin de siècle ideas about mortality and fin de siècle pessimism is largely due to this pandemic. I'm not convinced by this argument. I think maybe the, maybe the experience of illness and of flu contributed to that, but I can see that the beginnings of an interest in nervousness and nerves and also cultural pessimism. I think they were there also before and they changed throughout the 1890s. I don't think you can say a pandemic causes a cultural mood or a fin de siècle way of expressing fear or introspection or these kinds of things. The experience of, of illness will certainly have changed people's view on all sorts of things and maybe it did contribute but if it did, there will have been so many other factors as well that I don't think we can say this was it. And this is especially true 
when you compare it to the cholera outbreaks happening at the same time? When I first got your request, I checked the, the standard Russian dictionary, which is a, a wonderful and very uh, authoritative uh, publication, 80 volumes uh, brought out between 1890 and 1907. And it has an entry for influenza, and this is a page. And it says that in the past, we thought this was mainly a disease that affected horses, but recently it's also become to our attention that this can be more prevalent. And, and there have been outbreaks in the 1850s and also in 1890, but largely this is not very serious and people are ill for about three to four days and then they suffer a little bit longer from the after effects. It can cause mortality among people with earlier medical conditions, but by and large, this is not, not a big deal. And then it goes on to talk about uh, how it affects horses. If you compare that to the entry on cholera, it's more than 10 pages. And I think cholera is precisely one of the reasons why this pandemic, from the Russian perspective, but also from the historical perspective, from, from historical scholarship, has not received so much um, attention because we see in 1891, so immediately after this influenza pandemic, a huge famine in Russia. And famines are always events that help the spread of disease. And as a, as a consequence of that, there's a big a typhus epidemic in the Russian Empire and the most severe cholera epidemic that spreads as far west as Hamburg, where we see on uh, 10,000 deaths in the Russian Empire. They, are up to, they estimate that they uh, have 300,000 uh, fatalities. This is much more serious. There's a suggestion that illnesses that are out of the ordinary, that these give rise to anxieties and great fears, whereas this influenza pandemic is too similar to the normal winter flu, although it's more serious than the usual ones. And so again, you can fit it into traditional notions of risk. Right, there, there is a risk of dying or of getting badly ill in winter. And this is one case which fits very well with your annual concern for your health in winter. Whereas a cholera pandemic becomes so sudden and is so out of the ordinary and, and so shocking also in, in how the, the disease develops that you can't subsume it under this is the normal risk of life that I can't get rid of and that I have to somehow psychologically deal with. This focus on cholera and away from the flu outbreak is also something Julia picked up from contemporary doctors. The fact that Russian doctors are much more interested in waterborne disease in this period and also because of their interest in waterborne disease and in slums and their conviction, many of them are politically fairly radical and think that something should be done about poverty in the Russian Empire, that this is one of the other reasons why this pandemic is pushed to the side in public perception. But for Russian doctors, what really matters are these waterborne diseases and the relation to, to poverty. And these are the important things, not uh, severe winter cold. So this influenza outbreak was relatively inconspicuous, even though it killed, or at least laid low, a considerable number of contemporary celebrities, including Prince Albert Victor, Queen Victoria's grandson, Lord Rosebery, the UK Prime Minister, 
and the famous Russian mathematician Sofia Kovalevskaya. Yes, I think I think that's probably indicative about how we think of this pandemic, that we can pinpoint it to various well-known individuals who died, like Russian mathematician Sofia Kovalevskaya. And in her case, she was the first female professor of mathematics in modern times, so that her life was cut short at the age of 40. This is something that people who take an interest in the history of mathematics or in the interest of Russian women in science will know. But I think that we know this illness only through these tragedies is indicative that we don't think the illness itself was such a big deal otherwise. This, of course, brings up the question of whether we should have included the so-called Russian flu in our History of Pandemic series at all. And I'll revisit that at the end of the episode. But first, there were still a few more things that I was keen to understand about this outbreak. For example, how much increasing transport links had to do with its spread, and indeed, whether that might be one of the key factors. Now, I think there certainly plays a part, but I think the picture is a bit more complicated because it's not the first epidemic that's sort of affected by movement. All epidemics are spread through people moving, although at this time they're not quite sure it does actually, right? But what is interesting about cholera is the comparison here that from the Russian perspective seems very important, is cholera comes to Europe at the beginning of the 19th century and it's a consequence of European imperial expansion into, into India and Bengal, where the disease had been endemic. This 80-89 flu grows out of a similar imperial expansion because Russia and Britain are both meeting or, or, or having conflicting interests in Central Asia. And the Russian military command realizes that this influenza pandemic takes its beginning in Bukhara, in present-day Uzbekistan. And of course, in only a few years, one year before, in 1888, they finished the Trans-Caspian Railway to Bukhara. So it's with this, through this railway, that the disease comes to European Russia, and from European Russia spreads across the world until it comes back to, to China, so circles the globe in about a year. Given how many countries were affected, I was intrigued as to why this outbreak ended up being labelled as the Russian flu. So in a way, it's imperial expansion and imperial competition that brings both these countries to Europe. And this is also how contemporaries frame it. I think the reason it gets called the Russian flu in, in Britain is, on one hand, it's safely designed as something foreign. So that's already psychologically a bit easier to deal with if we can sort of say this is a foreign disease. But I think it also takes up this question of Russian-British rivalry in this area, almost like saying, see what this Russian advances causes. We get this um, pandemic as a, as a result. So in a way, it's also a, a public relations discourse or going on at the same time. And it's interesting that the Russians don't call it the Russian flu, although the Swedes did call it the, the Russian running noses. In fact, Julia mused on whether the perpetuation of this name today also reflects a modern misunderstanding of the sophistication or capacity of some 19th century societies. We often think that countries are less well organized at the time than they were, and we tend to think this particularly of 
countries like Russia where there is an understanding that they were somewhat backward. Whether this is fair or not has been a, a huge debate in the scholarship. But I think what we can certainly say is that Russian statistics in the late 19th century were excellent. And for economic historians and other people dealing with big numbers, they're fantastic sources about um, the population and uh, population statistics, income, economic statistics, all sorts of things. But they have to do with, with how states attempted to organize their populations. And, and yes, they are. They know, they know quite well what is going on, despite the fact, of course, that, that there are areas where they're less informed and that maybe it takes a while for figures to reach the center. And, and then there's, of course, also always a little bit of corruption here and there, which means that the statistics at the center might be less reliable than, than the locally, the, the, the local figures. But by and large, I think we can conclude that states at that time um, were quite well informed about what was going on. So moving on to the conclusion of this outbreak and to its perhaps dubious place within our historical narrative of pandemics, I asked Julia for her reflections on the legacy of Russian flu. But what is interesting in the long run is that the flu pandemic that started in 1889 did not leave a lasting imprint on Russian perceptions of what was going on in these years and what the important events in the 1890s were. For Britain and France, they only they don't have cholera in 1892, so their view on things is likely to be a, a little different. And maybe this also explains why the so-called Russian flu has left more traces in Britain than in other countries. And Britain has, as I said before, been much earlier with successful sewage and, and these kinds of things. So, um, so cholera is not is a past disease in Britain in the 1890s because they can deal with its threat. And so maybe the Russian flu, I think there, there are a number of reasons why it's prominent. One is, as I said, because of the uh, imperial uh, competitions as one reason and the other is possibly because there's no famine in 1891 in Britain and no cholera epidemic as a consequence. Julia also feels that modern experiences significantly impact on the importance we ascribe to events like epidemics. Out of interest I, I had a look at the sort of overview books of the 19th century, the standard overview um, textbooks and, and other introductory books that we usually assign students to read. And none of the ones I had on my shelf had epidemic, odysseys, or similar words in the index. There's one exception, which is a, a book by someone who wrote about cholera. So his overview book of 19th century European history does have a chapter on diseases. And I think this is indicative of how history works. My prediction is that in 10 years, epidemics will be in every history book about the 19th century, because we have now experienced ourselves that this does change life significantly. And I think what, what, we, what we see here and what raises a methodological question is to what extent historical research is dealing with questions of the present, which we then look for 
in the past. Books about the Russian Empire, they will mention the, the famine of 1891 and they will mention the cholera epidemic because you can't, you just can't overlook these things in the Russian Empire at the time. But I think the fact that overview books of global history um, in the 19th century don't, manage, don't mention diseases is interesting and indicative of the time of writing when these were not on the forefront of historians' minds. So finally, the big question, should we have included the Russian flu in this series? You'll hear from Julia shortly, but first from Klaus Kirschel, whom we met in episode six. I think nowadays the Russian influenza story is very interesting because the influenza strain is culturally significant in the sense that it leads bacteriologists to start suspecting uh, bacillus influenza, so a bacterial cause for influenza, which becomes very relevant. I could take in a very long winding history of how this is connected to the discovery of penicillin, which actually it's, 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 there is an immediate connection there. The big revolution of the 19th century is counting disease. It's, it's accumulating case numbers, um, and it is having then records of mortality going back that become increasingly robust. Counting death beyond the level of the individual community is an incredibly useful national tool for public health. Once you start counting something, that disease wins incredible power on this political marketplace of other diseases that can be prepared for or that you know should be taken into account for. So I would say from the perspective of a kind of historian of medicine, science and technology, that the Russian influence, in addition to obviously killing many people still and causing misery and causing widespread panic during this period, is very important for um, putting influenza as a disease category that is distinct from others onto the map, um, even though the, the wrong uh, etiological agent is defined during that period. And that, that comes back then in 1918, 1920, when everybody is looking for bacillus influenza. They're looking for a bacteriological cause because clearly that should be the cause, right? It leads Fleming to uh, isolate bacillus influenza from his nose and deposit it in Britain's microbiological collection as one of the first strains he deposits there um, and look for penicillin as a selective medium for it. Um, you know, it's it's you know, the the unintended consequences of this are, are pretty pretty phenomenal, actually. I think it's an excellent example because what it shows is that once the perspective of pandemics or epidemics can be very different depending on where you are, um, and in the Russian Empire, as I said, where there's the threat of cholera and typhus and all the other things, that other pandemics can sort of overshadow uh, a global pandemic. Um, I think this is very interesting that more local uh, epidemics can overshadow a, a global pandemic. But I also think that's interesting to see, we're used to living a life in which infections don't play a particularly strong role. I've once spoken to a, to a doctor who says, oh, we've all become so negligent with washing our hands and, and um, washing our clothes in really hot water because we have antibiotics and we're not used to that anymore. But what is interesting about this pandemic is that in a context where there is a constant presence of debilitating and frequently fatal diseases, that even a pandemic can be met with resignation uh, on parts of the population and very soon fade into general oblivion. I think this is interesting. And this tells us a lot about the period with which you, 
we are dealing here. And so I think it's a it's an excellent choice to go for a pandemic that is actually not seen as a big disaster, because in the in the context of what of of threats to to health, it's just well a particularly bad Russian sniff or snuff, what do you say? And not something that that puts everything on hold or or changes everyday life completely. Next time on Future Makers, we'll travel just a few years forward to another influenza pandemic that's been erroneously blamed on a single country, but which, unlike the Russian flu, is of unquestioned historical significance. This so-called Spanish flu is estimated by some to have infected up to a third of the world's population in the early 20th century, spreading rapidly through countries already ravaged by war and malnourishment. You'll almost certainly have heard of this deadly outbreak, but there's a lot more to learn behind the headlines, and we'll discuss it fully in the next episode of our History of Pandemics season. I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers was created in-house at the University of Oxford and presented by Professor Peter Milliken from Hartford College. Our voice actor today was Anna Wilson and the score for the series was designed and created by Richard Watts. The series is written and produced by Steve Pritchard and me, Ben Harwood. Thank you on behalf of the whole team for listening to the History of Pandemics. And we love hearing your feedback, so let us know what you thought of the show and what you might like to hear us cover in the future.